we're kicking off as well this week, and so this is going to be a picture heavy, uh, heavy Sunday morning. So if you like pictures, this is going to be your kind of Sunday morning. Um, a lot of slides, but we're kicking off a series on the Reformation. Uh, we've said it a few times that the 500th anniversary of the Reformation is coming up on Halloween, uh, 500 years, and so we thought it would be fun to do a series that way. And we also had a Kilns College Antioch trip that just went and, and visited, and because of that, we have uh, kind of a lot of people that were able to sit into the story of the Renaissance, the church in the Renaissance, and really the reaction to a lot of the excesses that were happening in that period of time. It's a fascinating study, but the question I want to ask first really is simply this, um, because it can seem all fun and well, but more academic than, than biblical or scriptural. So the first question is, why does history matter? If we're going to be talking about history or a lot of historical elements, why does history matter? And the interesting thing here is we are a people of the book. Uh, the Bible is kind of at the center of who we are. Uh, the people of God have always been a people of the book or the writings. And all of this in some ways is historical, but it's been broken down. We've got a graph for you. This is typically how theologians uh, would break down scripture and, and they would have the, the Pentateuch, the first five books, top left corner in blue. You're not going to be able to read it, but you can see the big blocks. Uh, the second block of blue on the, the left there, they call the history books. It's 12 books of the Bible, starts with Joshua, ends with Esther, and it covers 800 years of the history of the people of Israel, the people of God, into the land, into exile, and then returning from exile. Uh, we have poetry books, uh, which is like Psalms and Proverbs, and then the major prophets and minor prophets, just based on size, nothing fascinating there. Uh, then the Gospels, what we call the Gospels, the four books of the New Testament in orange there. One history book in the New Testament, the book of Acts. Uh, and then we've got Paul's letters grouped together in yellow. And then we've got the general letters grouped together in green. If you go to seminary, this is what you're going to be taught as how you break up or categorize scripture. It's how I was taught. The funny thing is when, when, you, when you love history, uh, you think that it's all bunk. It's, uh, I think that whole graph is completely wrong. And there's one big giant box. Let's, let's call that box orange um, for Clemson. Uh, grieving. And that, that's called history. And then all these other categories are inside that box. Because this book is a, a history book. It's a book of people uh, that have lived in the past. It's a book that, that has people God has spoken to in the past into their context. It's things that were written down in a certain place and time. It's, it's books that interact with the history of other books that precede uh, those books that are being written. All of this is history. I, I think somebody that, that never had a good history teacher was the first one to categorize it like this and to only have one history book in the New Testament. The Gospels are the history of Jesus, of the good news. So let me kind of argue that point just a little bit. Um, I believe the whole of the Bible is history. How, how can you say the book of Exodus is, is not history? Um, the movement of God's people out of Egypt into the, into the desert. Luke chap, uh, chapter 1 verse 1 says this. This 
we don't talk about it often. Nobody really preaches on it. But this is how Luke begins his first book. And he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly historical account. It's in the Greek. It's in there. Um, an orderly historical account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. The book of Acts, which follows Luke, says something very similar. It continues the story and begins this way. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. And after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And then it kind of continues. So you see, even with, with Luke, what he's trying to do in writing down this gospel account, or then the Acts of the Apostles, is to provide a historical record. In fact, a lot of the book of Acts is so historic that they use it to go find shipwrecks, to find other artifacts, and, and to chase down things from an archaeological perspective. It's fantastic history, and it tells that story. If we go a little bit further... Um, Paul's letters. Uh, Paul's letters are fascinating, but how do we not see them as, as being deeply historical and set in a place and time? First Timothy, I don't know if I have this for the screen or not, but First Timothy begins this way. Ah, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the command of God our Savior and, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. So you jump right into it, and we could continue with this whole book to Timothy, but Paul is writing to Timothy and basically saying, hey, Timothy, I told you just a little while ago, you stay there while I'm here, and you stay there, why? For a reason, because when you leave people that aren't as knowledgeable or mature about what the goal of ministry here, uh, here is, the, the pastoral arc that we're after, are going to go into and start playing around with endless genealogies. Uh, the Middle Ages was full of this. I think even today we have people that get caught up in trivialities. Back in their day, it was, uh, let's look at all the, the genealogies that could be in Christ or the Messiah's kind of lineage. What does that mean? How does it shape or affect different people and their standing? Just, just really getting into... Um, superstition, if you will. In the Middle Ages, they would ask questions. How many angels can dance on the head of, of, a, of a needle? You ever heard that phrase? It's come all the way down through history to us as kind of one of those, wow, that's a real catch-22. How many angels can dance on the, the, the head of a, of a pin or a needle? It's actually a false kind of categorical flawed question. Um, but that was the kind of stuff they would speculate about. I think today... We have our own ways of doing it. We, we kind of miss the story or the arc, pastoral arc of where things are going, and we, we can tend to make everything about me. 
Yes, that's nice, but what does this mean to me? Yes, that's nice, but when does my life get better? Yes, that's nice. But sometimes we can really get off track and begin to speculate a lot about the superstitious side of what we're going to take out of Scripture and then apply to our life. So that's Timothy. Uh, A couple other ones here. This is from Psalm 58. These are just random places I jumped into to give you an example. Psalm 58, this is from not the history books, but um, the poetic books, the way they categorized it. And it says, for the director of music, to the tune of Do Not Destroy, which is a tune of David's, uh, a miktam, which they don't quite know the word, but kind of a song or a melody or a, a kind of something to be sung is, is what it references. And then you get this fascinating stuff. Do you rulers indeed speak justly? Do you judge people with equity? No, in your heart you devise injustice and your hands meet out violence on the earth. So we've got written before Jesus this psalm that's supposed to be set to a tune of or about David, uh, David the, the king of Israel, the second king, and, and it's talking about rulers, that we have rulers too, not quite the same as the people in that day, kings, um, of that nature, but it's talking about those rulers and whether they speak and act justly or whether they use or abuse their power to devise injustice. This was written in a place at a time when it was about something deeply meaningful and it was set in this context. And you get all of that texture even from the intro to the song. And when we sing psalms or worship songs, We're jumping into and patterning our words along the words of history because either what was spoken about back then is so relevant for all times or we find in it a certain comfort that that these kinds of trials have always gone on or, or, or we connect traditionally with people. There is no tradition without history. The prophets, Isaiah 14, says this, on the day... The Lord gives you relief from your suffering. Uh, On the day the Lord gives you relief from your suffering and turmoil and from the harsh labor forced on you, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. And then it goes, how the oppressor has come to an end, how his fury has ended. This is a fascinating piece of scripture. Much, if not most, of scripture was written by oppressed people. Even Moses was born as a Hebrew baby, put in a basket because his parents were not allowed to keep him. He should have been killed in childbirth. And they put him in a basket and he floats down the river. You, You might know the story. He's raised by the daughter of Pharaoh, but then he's exiled. Uh, He's out in the desert. He comes back as an outsider, foreigner, to try and ask for his people to be let go. He ends up taking these oppressed people, the slaves of Egypt, and leads them out into a desert, basically a, a people without borders, without a land, stateless people is what the Israelites were. The prophets talking about oppressed peoples, people who are being invaded and carted off into exile. The New Testament written entirely by people who were living under Roman occupation. We don't really understand that because nobody in this room, I don't think, very few of us in this room have ever lived under a totalitarian or oppressive regime. We've never lived with that reality of what it means to be the oppressed. 
and to write or to think from the bottom, to even interpret what the good news of Jesus Christ would mean to us as somebody who is existing in an oppressed state. There are people in this, in this world, there are people in this country that have come here that know what oppression is. And this is what Isaiah says. Look, on that day when God delivers you, good news, you will take up this taunt. So this song now is, is, a, is a taunt against the person who is evil or wicked, specifically the king of Babylon, the specific person who held you in the state of oppression. And then you say how the oppressor has come to an end. This king will come to an end, how his fury has gone away. This is deeply historical. It tells us about something going on to people that was very real, that felt very real. When I, when I teach history to people or even try to, to talk about U.S. history or or some of the things that get missed in our history books. What I say is, we have this thing about history where we, where we thin it out. We, we thin history down. And one of the great examples is the Revolutionary War. I once had someone say to me like, well, that's not a real war. And, and what they meant was like, that was nothing like World War I or World War II where you had like industrial level war. I mean, the Revolutionary War, you know, they took breaks during the winter, right? Like it was a skirmish. And I kind of thought that was really funny, and I've reflected on it a lot. If you were a soldier dying of disease, taking a break from fighting in winter because you were freezing to death of frostbite, uh, you don't freeze to death of both. You're freezing to death, starving, and frostbite, all three. Um, and, and you're having low-velocity musket balls go through you when you're standing up and just shooting into a line and having to do that and have, have limbs sawed off or die over the next month of gangrene, that, that you're being put into this position and, and existing in this state, I don't think you would think that was a thin war or a skirmish or not, it, you know, something that doesn't really count. Like when you're in history, it's full of drama. When you stand outside of history and you look back, it's just bullet points on a piece of paper. It can become bullet points on a piece of paper. Your struggles can become bullet points on a piece of paper for me. If I jump into your experience and empathize with you, then it becomes um, so nuanced, so textured, so real, so dramatic. History's a lot like that. Um, the Bible is an inroad to understanding the experience of the people whose lineage we are in. This is a part of our faith. Uh, lastly, along these lines, and uh, I had a friend that was really helping me think um, about this. He's writing a book on mass incarceration, and there's something really interesting that four of, of Paul's letters, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, that four of Paul's letters are what we call the prison letters. In other words, Paul was in prison when he wrote these. Um, has anyone ever really thought about that? What that really means, that a prisoner uh, writes to us from his prison cell 2,000 years ago? You see, we are, we are so patterned in the United States to see prison and prisoners a certain way that, that they are the ones that are separated out from society deserving of, of a punitive or kind of punishment 
and, and eventually they get to be folded back into society. But we believe something very qualitatively different that I don't think is a biblical category, but it's a cultural one that we've kind of grown up with. And what would it be like for a prisoner now somewhere to be writing to the church uh, in America as God's chosen instrument, the text that we need to read? I mean, just think about that. What would it be like for us to hear or to listen to the voice of a prisoner writing to us today? Paul wrote four prison letters that we still read today. And do we think of the fact that he was a prisoner at the time that he wrote it? What does that actually mean? It's deeply historical. Um, so now the question really, I think for the gospel and for scripture and for our faith, you can't strip out history. Um, but why the Reformation? Why does the Reformation matter? I think the first thing is a word of caution. We can put up a slide on the Great Schism uh, of, of 1054. And the word of caution is just simply this. If you get too deep into the Reformation, you get too deep into Western European Christianity, you can begin to think that this is the only thing of church history. That there was the Catholic Church, there was the reaction to some of the things, you had the Protestant faith emerge, and, and that's basically the storyline is these two branches. And we would be committing a gross injustice to the Christian church if we did. There was a, a, big, a big separation long before Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. And it was this east-west split where you see, you can maybe see it on the next slide better, I'm not sure, um, but the blue is what became Eastern Orthodox Church. We still have the Eastern Orthodox with us, even in the United States. You certainly see it if you travel abroad and go to a place where historically that's been the primary church. The green areas uh, stayed with the Latin church or, or the Catholic church, what came to be known as, um, as the Holy Catholic Church. What happened here, one spoke Latin in their services, one spoke Greek, languages begin to cause problems. Uh, even down in the bottom of Italy, you had the Greek-speaking churches. And what, what goes on is the Greek-speaking churches are shut down and told they have to speak Latin. There's a reaction on the, the Greek side to do the same thing, to, to, to shut down the Latin-speaking churches, especially around Constantinople. You can't really see it. But where the sea comes together as a finger, it's modern-day Istanbul, it's Constantinople back then, it's one of the primary cities, and so that became an issue. Uh, what's going on in the Eucharist, they, they argued about, can you drink both the cup and eat the bread, or just eat the bread and the priest drinks the cup? That was an issue. And then ultimately, who's in charge the Pope in Rome wanted to claim superiority over the bishops of five churches. You had uh, Constantinople, you had Alexandria, Jerusalem, Antioch. There was five of them. Uh, there might only be four, but there's five churches that collectively made up the church governance structure for the East. And the, the, the Catholic Pope comes in and basically demands that, that they swear allegiance to his supremacy. So the supremacy of the Pope over those other leaders, uh, they didn't do it. So the emissary of the Pope immediately excommunicated the Bishop of Constantinople. Uh, the Bishop of Constantinople immediately excommunicated the Pope, uh, and they've never talked since, right? Um, this is the, uh, the Great Schism, known as the Great Schism of 1054. So you had a break 
uh, another time in history. So it'd be wrong for us to think that this Protestant one is we're dealing with the sum total of church history. It's one branch and a very important break that happened in, in Western Christianity. There's another story that I don't have a picture for, but the Ethiopian church, since the time of Mark, they believe that Mark uh, came and traveled down into some of those regions. They believe the Ethiopian eunuch that we read about uh, in the book of Acts, that Philip the evangelist uh, ends up sharing and baptizing this person from Ethiopia, that you had the church begin all the way back in the book of Acts in Ethiopia, and that it existed in some ways untouched for 2,000 years that the historic or the Coptic church in Ethiopia is this unbroken um, legacy of, of Christianity as it showed up in Ethiopia. So we would be doing an injustice if we, were thought, uh, if we thought we were talking about the totality of Christianity and missing some of these ancient kind of versions that come even to this day. So it matters, but the word of caution is we have to put it in perspective. Um, Church history is important, though. Paul counsels us to test the spirits, to hold on to the good, to let go of the bad. So when we find ourselves in a tradition, we have to know what has shaped that tradition and where it comes from. We all know that we borrow heavily from the early church creeds, which began to formulate doctrines around Jesus, his divinity, the Holy Spirit, etc. But then we come to this fascinating time in the early 1500s where we get the Reformation. So we'll show you a picture of Luther here. Uh, this is Martin Luther. He had his picture painted a lot during his lifetime. One of the primary Reformation uh, printers or, or painters had his workshop there, Lucas Cronich the Elder. There was also Luke, Lucas Cronich the Younger. And periodically they would do portrayals of Luther. And so we have a lot of different instances of it. Martin Luther, fascinating story, was studying for law, was caught in a thunderstorm. You have to understand Luther as coming out of medieval Christianity which was incredibly afraid of everything. You've come out of the, the Great Plague, one-third of Europe completely destroyed, uh, upending belief systems about God even. And so this idea of death always being around the corner and that God in some ways uh, really can punish through nature or the diseases that come through nature. He's caught in a thunderstorm. He's afraid he's going to die. He promises God. Uh, he prays to St. Anne, which was the patron saint of his family, and says, if, if God delivers me from, uh, from this thunderstorm, I'll become a monk. He's delivered from the thunderstorm. He becomes a monk, and he's an intense individual. And so he goes about what he's doing as a monk, his work, his confession, his, his punishment of his own body, at such a high level that the person he was confessing to finally thought, I've got to get Luther out of here for his own good. He's too intense. I'll send him to Rome. And he can do a pilgrimage. He'll be on the road for a number of months. He'll travel from Germany all the way down to Rome. And so Luther goes to Rome. He does it in 1910. This is fascinating stuff because he walks in under the reign of Julius II, known as the warrior pope, because he would go out and actually lead his papal troops into battle at different times. Uh, and the warrior pope is the guy that forced Michelangelo to come and paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Michelangelo didn't want to do it. He ran away. The papal guards were sent to drag Michelangelo back. Michelangelo is doing the Sistine Chapel from 1508 to 1512. So when Luther comes to Rome, you have the Sistine Chapel ceiling being painted. Luther is 
and the construction of St. Peter's is, is beginning. And Luther is appalled at the moral decay of the church. Uh, the, the Renaissance popes have brought in a lot of worldly concerns. He's, he's just kind of destroyed by this, and this becomes the first of many things that begin to jar him loose from the faith that had been passed down to him. But the idea of Luther as a monk in Rome while Michelangelo is painting the, uh, the Sistine Chapel ceiling is a fascinating one to me. Like, you can't make this stuff up. You know what I'm talking about? Somebody, somebody give me an amen. Um, it's just fascinating. Uh, Luther, you fast forward on, on October 31st, 1517, pushes back against the Catholic Church because there was abuses that were happening to his people that he had charge over. In other words, now Leo X, the next pope, is building St. Peter's, and to finance it, He's selling forgiveness. He's selling what's called indulgences. And uh, by the way, we can show you Wittenberg uh, in this next picture. This is just from a week ago. Um, this is Wittenberg. That's the castle church tower at the end of the street. A lot of these buildings uh, date back to the time of Luther, certainly the church that Luther preached at. Um, and we have the next picture of the group in front of um, the famous door, the old wood door burned down. This is a, a cast version that the king of Prussia put there that has inscribed into it or cast into it Luther's 95 Theses. Um, I think the next picture might actually be a copy of the printed version of the 95 Theses where it's in Latin being sent around, Gutenberg's press helping now um, to put out those complaints against the church. And the big issue here is the, the, the idea of salvation and the idea of forgiveness being sold to people, peasant people, uh, by sales pe uh, people. Think of, think of uh, timeshare salespeople. And Johann Tetzel was the salesman in Luther's area, and he would come around and say things like, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. He was known to, to hold a fire over his arm until his flesh would burn and people could smell it. And he would say, these are your relatives burning in the fires of purgatory. Put your money in the bin. Very different kind of announcement than what Pete gave earlier. Just want <laughs> to separate that out. Um, <laughs> he even said, because again, you have people that are illiterate, that don't know the New Testament for themselves. They've never actually read any scripture. And he would say to them things like, this forgives you even for sex with the dead Virgin Mary. In other words, all of your sin can be forgiven by this piece of paper. And Luther's watching the sale of this to the people that he has charge over, that he, that he speaks to on the weekends, teaches during the day. And he's, he's frustrated as a strong personality, and he's going to talk about it. And that's where you get this flashpoint of the 95 Theses. What happens in the next number of years uh, is actually really fascinating, and I'll just roll through it really quickly, um, is it shapes the globe that we know today. Luther's Reformation shapes the world that we have today. You had peasants' wars, 30-year wars. You had all of these different things happening. You had Germans going with Luther. You had people around Geneva going with Calvin. And then you had northern France turning into the Netherlands, Belgium, that believed along the lines of the Reformation, different than the French, which held to Catholicism, you had the beginning of 
the age of exploration. And so the colonial impulse of monarchs that were either Protestant or Catholic begins to be a part of this arms race to go and take different territories, not only in the name of the king, but in the name of their faith. So you have a fascinating thing happen. Um, Catch it up real quick. Henry VIII, living during the time of the Reformation, writes in Latin against Luther because he was supposed to be a, a person of the church. His older brother was being groomed to be king. So Henry VIII's older, older brother dies, he becomes king, but he still fancies himself a theologian. He writes against Luther in Latin, and the Pope goes, oh, you're such a great person, calls him the defender of the faith, right? Another 10 years later, he wants out of his marriage, um, another Medici Pope, and he finds a legal mechanism to kind of um, jump out of this and takes the whole of the Church of England out of the Catholic Church, Um, And you have this fascinating thing that begins to happen where the Anglican church doesn't want to be Catholic, doesn't want to be Protestant. They want a middle ground, not the extremes, to try to hold the English people together. So what happens then under uh, Queen Elizabeth is you've got the, the Spanish king, Philip, wants to take over England as a prize for the Pope, a heavily Catholic individual. And so he's plundering South America of their gold, plundering and committing genocides, and Drake plundering the Spanish ships that are bringing gold back to Spain. All of this is going on with religious motivation beneath it that has to do with the Protestant and the Catholic shaping of what's happening. Just a little bit later, after Elizabeth, you get King James. King James, wanting to do the same thing, wants to hold the middle and, and keep the Anglican, the Church of England thing going. Part of that was to, to commission a Bible that we could all unite around. It becomes the King James Bible of 1611. Just a few short years later, you have Puritans, the extreme on the Protestant side, that wanted to see England become more of a New Testament biblical Christianity, end up sailing for the colonies, uh, or what would become the colonies of North America. And you see Puritans landing in New England and beginning to try to practice their faith here without interference from the Church of England. Because many of them, like John Bunyan, were put in prison. John Bunyan wrote prison letters. He even wrote some books from prison. Fascinating. It shaped the world in which we live today. Um, If you want, we can uh, even talk about the numbers There are between 800 and 900 million Protestants in the world. Uh, There's 2.4 billion Christians, but between 800 and 900 million, I'll put a table up here. You can see the percentage of Catholic, uh, and then the next one is Protestant. All of this Protestant begins in 1517 as a reaction to the Catholic Church. The next slide, I think, shows where that exists now. This is just a difference between 1910 and and 2010, 100 years. If we went back from from Luther's time and showed it, it would be even more dramatic. But in 1910, uh, Europe was 66.3% of the distribution of Christianity, and the Americas were 27.1%. If we go to today, you have Europe being only 25%. By the way, Europe has the lowest percentage per capita of Christianity, other than the Middle East. Uh, 23% sub-Saharan Africa. 
Um, and then we go on in the Americas, 36.8% uh, Christian. By the way, America has the most Christians in the world, uh, arguably, unless you get in and count the underground church in China, which is a very difficult thing to do. So it's shaped, the Reformation has shaped the world in which we live. It's valuable to talk about it, to understand how we got where we are, how a lot of our history, even strange history like plundering South America, um, is tied to the religious battles between Protestants and Catholics, even our languages. Uh, Luther set the German language when he, when he wrote up in German the, the German New Testament. It formed the grammar. It formed the phraseology. Every school child, uh, child that was taught how to read begins reading Luther's New Testament. So that book shapes the German language. In many ways, the King James Bible shapes and sets the English language for a long time to come. These things not only shaped the, the geography, they shaped the language and how we conversed with each other. So here's really the question and, uh, and we'll kind of come back and end on this. But why does history matter? We have a historic faith. In fact, if you talk apologetically, like um, apologetics is arguing that Christianity is true or believable. If you talk to somebody that's an agnostic or an atheist and saying, I don't know that I believe in this, but I want to explore religion. How, how would I go about exploring religion? I really care not just what's going to feel good, but what's true. One of the first things you'd say to people is, if God was interacting with his creation, I doubt he would wait till uh, 1999 to start talking to us. That if God was going to interact with his creation, that God would have been interacting with creation for a very long time. So if you want to find a true religion... Uh, you probably ought to look for an old religion, an old faith. And, and typically that ends up being, uh, in, a, in a monotheistic way, the Abrahamic faiths of Judaism, Christianity, or Islam. And so if you believe in a personal God that would actually talk to his creation, then you end up with a monotheistic faith. And so even the idea of the believability of Christianity sometimes starts with the historicity, uh, the historicity of Christianity. Why does history matter? It matters because we're a people that are tied into a, a long tradition. Why does the Reformation matter? Because whether we, we know it or not, we've been deeply shaped by it. And what does this actually mean for us? And I'll just give a couple things, but the next five sermons are really going to lean into and apply the unique parts of the Re Reformation for us. But here's a couple things. Um, worship and teaching. There wasn't really a teaching in the language of the people before the Reformation. In fact, the first Protestant sermon ever given is believed to have been given in Wittenberg, Germany, on Christmas Eve. What made it a Protestant sermon? That it was given in the German language in a way that the people could understand. That's what marked it as being Protestant. So worship and teaching are deeply shaped in this conversation. What do we mean by learning, by reading, by personal Bible study, by Scripture actually being alive so that I can come to it in my own devotional or, or kind of spiritual context to meet God in that place? Uh, the churches didn't sing before the Protestant Reformation. That first Protestant sermon was also marked a Protestant sermon because they sang that Christmas Eve. 
And so the songs and bringing that back into the church, the congregational songs, deeply shape us. And I think we get to ask some questions, even as we're on the hunt for a worship pastor. What does it mean for us to worship on a Sunday morning? What does that look like? What should we be doing? How should we prepare? What, is it, what, what do I reflect on as I'm engaging in this? What are the people that are up here leading us in music or song actually doing? And what's the goal that, that we would arrive at together? Like We get to, to wrestle, I think, with some of those questions in a unique way because worship and teaching are deeply shaped by our reading of the text and by the Protestant Reformation. Second thing is we don't worship the Reformation. We don't worship the Reformation. We value the act of reforming. We don't worship the Reformation. We, we value, we ought to value the act of reforming, even in our day today. What is it about culture that is taking us into strange directions that God would not have us um, go into? And how do we find in church history or in the New Testament an example that helps us understand where we might should be going? And the freedom in the Holy Spirit to say we can say no to things. That just because conservative evangelicalism is by and large trending to a certain direction, we can be prophetic and call it to account and say, no, that is not okay. That if we are, are people of the book and of the New Testament faith, we need to stand outside of that and go a different direction. There's a really interesting part to that because the world is different. Do you know that uh, Brazil has more than twice as many Catholics as Italy does. Brazil has twice as many Catholics as Italy. You want to talk about Catholicism, talk about Brazil. Nigeria has more than twice as many Protestants as Germany does, the birthplace of the, of the Protestant Reformation. So the Americas, Africa, are, are the new hubs in some ways for the global church. How do we reform our thinking to understand that we have a globalized faith now and that there are voices from countries speaking to us that don't necessarily show up in the theology books written in the 1800s or the 1700s. And what does that mean for us as we try to understand and hear what God is doing in our time and where he's leading us as we move forward? We can be always reforming, always reforming. Um, I'll, just, I'll just cut it to a close. C.S. Lewis said this, all that we call human history, all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than the God which will make him happy. And I think the thread of the gospel story that we have in scripture and in tradition is the, the thin path, the thin road that Jesus talked about. That wide is this road, easy is this road. But there is a path that's marked out that we can find it, that we can trace it, that in some ways we're called to blaze it, this thin line of how the good news of Jesus Christ is gonna provide our happiness and our joy rather than the way the world is taking us, often indistinguishable from religion. The Renaissance popes, where does the religion and the worldliness start or stop? And so I think along the lines of what Lewis is saying, that we can go with human history 
as it, it, it chases out the things that we hunger for, de- desire, or lust after, or we can wrestle with, as people of faith, what the things are that we should be following, chasing, or exploring, that we would be with God and know the joy that he created us to know. So here are, f- uh, are five core values that emerged from the Reformation. Not a single one of the Reformation writers would have listed them all this way, but they emerged over time as the core doctrines of the Reformation. And it's going to be the structure of this sermon series as we move forward. But in Latin, sola scripture, meaning scripture alone, that church tradition isn't going to dictate our faith um, over and above what we see in scriptures, that we begin here with the primary authority Sola scriptura, sola gratia, meaning grace alone, as opposed to praying to saints or doing works of penance or buying, in some sense, indulgences or forgiveness. Sola fide, that it's by faith alone um, that we come to Christ, apprehend him, and are able to receive salvation. Solus Christus, meaning Christ alone, that there is no other way to the Father but through Christ And so not through the saints, not through Mary, not through a lot of other things that might grow up around it, but through Christ alone. And that ultimately all these things, soli deo gloria, are to God's glory alone. That's the famous uh, phrase that Bach abbreviated to just simply SDG that he would write and put on each of his works, that all that I do, that it's to, to the glory of God alone. And in studying these five things, I think we get to answer questions that, that somehow, whether we're aware of it or not, we wrestle with. How do I come to know God? How do I sense intimacy with God? What role does Christ really play in my life? What does it mean to walk by faith? As someone who is forgiven once but continues to have a messy life and to sin, what is really the operative part of grace? And can I ever fully receive it in a way that just changes me so that I don't keep trying to earn God's approval, but that I can rest in the grace that he so freely gives. These things we're going to wrestle with. And what is my call in life or my vocation? Whatever the answer to that is, it's really going to be found in this last thing that no matter what you do, whatever your hand finds to do, do all to the glory of God. So we're going to take communion now. I almost want you to take it in anticipation. Anticipation of the blood of Christ, the body of Christ, Christ alone that we see in Scripture that, that helps undergird our faith and tell us or teach us what grace is really about. Anticipation that as we go through this series, that the communion, uh, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper that we celebrate each week as a means of grace, that that will come to mean so much more to you as we dive into the theology and the symbolism of our faith, our historic faith. Does that make sense? Can I get an amen on that? All right, so let me pray for us. The the worship team is going to come out, and they are going to lead us in worship, which comes from the Anglo-Saxon worth-ship. As we are led in this time, we are ascribing worth to God and receiving the grace that he gives through Jesus Christ. Father, 
We want to give you all the glory and we want to sit into the faith that we have. We want to avail ourselves of the resources that we have, of scripture, of the fact that we benefit from having it in our language, of other, other people who have gone before us and been able to help us find language uh, that, that informs our relationship with you. We want to know you and we want, we want to know Christ and him crucified. Let us come with our mess. Let us come with the sins we committed this week and this month. Let us come in some ways feeling awkward before the throne of grace. But let us leave knowing that you are a father who forgives. You are eager to to forgive those who confess their sins. That you have mercies that are new every morning. That Christ died so that we could have the grace to continue to stay in relationship with you. We pray that now in Christ's name. Amen.